Hey guys, it's Hal and this is Horrid Happenings. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me again today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm feeling pretty good. It's Thursday here. So feeling pretty good, ready for the weekend. No self-loathing going on in this house today. <laughs> you know, there is still time for me to look in the mirror and ruin the rest of my day. But at the moment, we're all good. I'm looking forward to the weekend, spending some time with the hubby and the kids. And yeah, just having a couple of days off. Hope you are all well. Uh, before we get into the case today, I just wanted to say a very quick but a very humongous thank you to everybody who is listening, everyone who is listening and has connected on my Instagram page. I really appreciate it. I feel the love, I feel all the support, and yeah, I'm just I'm so so grateful for you all. You're all just great, and I fucking love yous. I won't go on and on and do a massively long intro, um, because nobody really probably don't even like this short one but you know here we are so let's move straight on to the case so this is a UK case and it is a one from the 1800s so let's get into it in March of 1873 a woman a woman named Mary Ann was hanged at Durham Gallows after being charged with the murder of her stepson by poisoning so who was Mary Ann Mary Ann Cotton was born Mary Ann Robson on the 13th of October 1832 in Low Morsley, County Durham, North East England. She was born to parents Michael and Margaret Robson, Margaret's maiden name being Lonsdale. Now, Mary Ann was the first of three children born to the couple. Her sister Margaret was born in 1834 but died, sadly, only a few months later and her brother Robert was born in 1835. Shortly after her birth, on November the 11th, 1832, Marianne was baptised at St Mary's Church in West Rainton. Marianne's father, Michael, worked as a miner in County Durham, and when Marianne was eight years old, the family moved from Low Morsley to the village of Merton, County Durham. Shortly after moving, Michael suffered a fatal accident, unfortunately, in February 1842, whilst he was working. He fell 150 feet to his death down a mine shaft at Merton Colliery. When the family were made aware of the news, Margaret, newly widowed, received her husband's body in a sack that had a stamp on it that said, Property of the Sutton Heat and Coal Company. So not only that, she also received an eviction notice. So not only that, she also then received an eviction notice. Um, not, not a good day for Margaret. The house that the family lived in was a miner's cottage, meaning that it came with Michael's job, and as he was no more, Margaret and the children had to leave. But it was only the following year, in 1843, that Margaret met and married a man named George Stott, who was also a miner, and he moved her family into his home. At the age of 16, Marianne left home and moved out to a nearby village of South Heaton, becoming a nurse and a housekeeper at the home of a man named Edward Cotter, who was a manager at Merton Mining. Three years later, once Edward's children were all grown, enough to go off to boarding school, Mary Ann moved back to George Stott's home with her mother and her brother. And while she was there, she was training as a dressmaker in the village. At 20 years of age, in 1852, Mary Ann actually courted and then married William Mowbray, who was a labourer. Once they married, the couple moved to South West England. Some of the following information isn't actually legally documented, for example, birth and death certificates. 
this has left a lot of conversation and arguments about the full reality of Marianne's life. But I am going to give you like the most reported timeline of events. So just bear with and just remember, I'm giving you the most reported things that I found while researching but a lot of it is not legally documented. Because it wasn't actually until, I think it was 1874, that it was a legal requirement for registration of certain documents. So yeah, so please just take into account that allegedly is a big part of this entire thing, really. Within a decade of marriage to William, Mary, known as Mrs Mowbray at this time, went on to have eight or nine children with her husband, although only one of the children's births was actually recorded. Um, who, which was a daughter named Margaret Jane, who was born at St Germans in 1856. So throughout these years, the couple seemed to move around quite frequently before they then settled in Hendon, County Durham in 1856. So that was around the same time that their daughter Margaret was born. William became a fireman aboard a steam vessel sailing out of Sunderland before moving to be a foreman. They went on to have another daughter in 1858 named Isabel or Isabella. Unfortunately, in 1860, the Mowbray's daughter, Margaret Jane, died. But the following year, they had another girl and also named her Margaret Jane. John Robert William was there next. He was born in 1863. He also unfortunately died in 1864 from gastric fever. It is also reported that possibly only three of the children survived and the rest were all taken ill and then died, allegedly by gastric fever. Then disaster struck again when William succumbed to an intestinal disorder in January 1865. Luckily, yes, for Mary Ann, William had at some point taken out an insurance policy, not only for himself, but for his children too. So instead of being left with nothing after becoming widowed and still grieving the death of her infants, Mary Ann was actually granted a payout of about £35 for the death of her husband, which was about half a year's wage for a labourer at the time. Now, I did look this up and I think it equates to roughly £3,500 £4,000 today but don't quote me on that one. And then I think she got around £2 for her son, John Robert Williams. It is believed that all but two of Mary's children had sadly died at this point, under very similar circumstances. A man named Joseph Natras was next in line to tickle Mary's fancy, after she moved her and her two surviving children to Seaham Harbour, County Durham. During this time with Joseph, Mary Ann's daughter, Margaret Jane, the second daughter, was three and a half years old when she sadly died. So out of a suspected nine children, Mary only had one child survive, which was baby Isabella. With that, she moved back to Sunderland, sent her daughter Isabella to live with her mother, though, and she took a job on at the Sunderland Infirmary, House of Recovery for the Cure of Contagious Fever, Dispensary and Humane Society. Whilst working, Marianne met a man named George, who was a patient at the infirmary, but engineer by trade. And she fucking loved this dude. So she was like, Joseph, off you go, in the dust. And George and Marianne married on the 28th of August, 1865, in Monkwamouth, not 100% sure how to pronounce that, at St. Peter's Church. Unfortunately, George's health deteriorated quite a lot. And October the 20th, 1866, he actually passed away after suffering for a long time with intestinal issues, amongst other ailments. And his death certificate stated he had died from cholera and typhoid, with Marianne later collecting insurance money. 
Surprise, surprise. Following his death in November of the same year, Marianne went on to work as a housekeeper for shipwright James Robinson. Now, James was recently widowed after his wife Hannah had passed away. James had some children with Hannah. Um, some of the names I couldn't find, so three I do know are Elizabeth, James and John. And a few months after a hiring Marianne, James and his youngest son, a baby named John, died from, you guessed it, gastric fever. Needing support, he turned to Marianne for comfort, which turned into a romance, which turned into a pregnancy. During her pregnancy, Margaret, Marianne's mother, became ill with hepatitis, so Mary fled to be by her side. Margaret was starting to feel better, and she was starting to recover, but when she seemed to all be almost recovered, Margaret started to complain of a pretty bad stomach pains, and only nine days after Marianne had moved back to help in the spring of 1867, her mother sadly died at age 57, leaving George Stott a widower. George did actually go on to remarry, and he wed a neighbour of his who was named Hannah Paley, who was also widowed herself. With Isabel being cared for by Margaret before her death, Marianne then moved her daughter into the Robinson home to live with her and James. James's two surviving children, Elizabeth and James, actually welcomed Isabella kindly to the household, but it would only be mere months, maybe weeks after her arrival, that all three children were struck down with severe and fatal stomach pains. In the spring months of April and May 1867, the three children had their burials, with Mary fucking Ann receiving a life insurance payout for Isabella. James was infatuated with Mary Ann's strength and her comfort in these trying times, so in August of the same year, they actually wed at St Michael's Church. Um, that was in November 1867. No, it wasn't. That was when she gave birth. <laughs> November 1867, Mary Ann gave birth to their first child together and named her Mary Isabella. Sadly, baby Mary became sick very shortly after being born and at only two, maybe three months old, she succumbed to the illness, dying in February 1868. James and Mary Ann tried once again and... In 1869, on the 18th of June, they welcomed a baby boy whom they called George. Are you all with me on this wild ride? It's a lot of information so far in such a short space of time. Need a breath. So, James was actually becoming suspicious of his wife during their marriage as she was insisting constantly that he took out a life insurance policy. So, with that, he started doing some silent digging. While searching around, he actually found that Mary had been stealing money from him that she was supposed to be putting into the bank and she was running up debts of around £60, which I think is about six and a half grand today. So she was running up these debts in their name and also making James's older children pawn their household items for her to bring in more money that then she was just spending and running up more debt. So James had had enough and he kicked Mary out of the house in 1869. Following her kicking to the curb, Mary actually became homeless and James managed to gain custody of their youngest George. She wasn't homeless for long though, as in 1870, desperate to find a home, she met a friend's brother, another widow named Frederick Cotton. Ding, ding, ding. That's where she gets her name from. Her sister Margaret had introduced them and Frederick was a pitman living in Northumberland who had not long lost his wife and two of his four children. In the year that they met, Frederick had actually reportedly lost his sister and his youngest child also. 
Marianne's relationship with Frederick, Frederick moved really fast. They were the same year on the 17th of September, although she was actually still married to James at this point. And she soon became another mother to his two remaining children and then soon became pregnant herself again with a son. Early 1871 was the birth of their first child together, whom they named Robert. Are you with me, folks? Not long after the birth of Robert, though, did she find out that her ex, Joseph Natras, not her ex-husband, just one of her other exes, whom the one who she left when her mother became poorly. She found that Joseph was actually living near in West Auckland and wasn't married. Mary enjoyed this fact and decided to fire up her relationship with him again, because why not, hey? So she persuaded her new family to move closer to the village that he was living in so she could be near him. Then, in 1871, Frederick Cotton became ill and shortly after he sadly died of gastric fever. And Mary once again collected life insurance on her husband and his sons. Shortly after Frederick's death, Joseph became a lodger at Mary Ann's home. Frederick's son, uh, sons still lived in the home at the time. So needing work, she secured a job working once again as a nurse, but for an officer who was actually in recovery from being ill with smallpox. There were some sources that claimed that this guy's name was John Quick Manning, but according to Wikipedia, there is no trace of anyone by that name on record. From the area, there is actually a record of a guy named Richard Quickman. So it's possibly that that was the man that Marianne was nursing back to health. But, you know, we'll just we'll just go with it, okay? So he could be called John Quick Manning, could be called Richard Quick Manning, who knows? Whilst doing her job, I think she was also doing him a couple of jobs. That was childish, but anyway. It wasn't long before she got pregnant with her 13th child and Richard slash John was the father. Unfortunately, it wasn't long before Frederick Jr. became ill and in March 1872, he passed away. Then shortly after that, baby Robert also became ill and sadly died. <sighs> Joseph Natras is still about lodging with Marianne and getting it on when they have this bright idea to revise his will to highly benefit Marianne. Clever, very clever. There was also an insurance policy still out waiting to be collected for the life of Charles. Still very much alive, Charles, at this point but it was there. Marianne was looking to marry Joseph because, well, obviously, she claimed that official to official, she was unable to do so because of Charles, her stepson, who was seven at the time, and it's reported that she tried to send Charles off to a workhouse, but when that failed, she actually said about Charles, whilst complaining that he was a burden, that it, it won't be troubled long, and she possibly said to somebody, he'll go like the rest of the cotton children. So, as you can all see, She's a fucking delight. It was only five days after she spoke these words that she then told the coroner's assistant, a man named Thomas Riley, that the boy had unfortunately died. Thomas Riley had recently asked Mary Ann to work nursing a woman who was ill with smallpox. He was a parish official, but also helped to assist in the coroner's office. Mary Ann was getting cocky at this point and she did not bank at all on Mr Riley going to the village police and telling them what she'd said. And he also then insisted that the doctor not sign a death certificate until the matter had been fully investigated. According to a source, 
the local coroner actually did a very quick post-mortem ex examination on Charles on Mary Ann's kitchen table. Weird, right? It was quick as he actually ran out of time to get it done before inquest. So the coroner stated that it was probably just gastroenteritis, right? Because professionally speaking off a kitchen table of someone else's house, that's obviously what it is. They found that the very first thing that Marianne did after Charles's death was not head to the doctor's office, and she certainly wasn't upset. She actually, in fact, went straight to the insurance office, of course, but she wasn't to be getting anything this time, as you had to have a signed certification of death to make a collection. So whilst investigating everything that they'd been told by Mr Riley, etc., suspicions were just rising. Marianne had thought she'd won again, as Charles's body was buried like she asked. But did she win this time, really? Turns out that the coroner who performed the autopsy had kept samples, specifically samples of Charles's stomach. Thomas Riley insisted that they look into these remains and, when, and run tests on these samples, and when they did that, they actually found traces of arsenic. The police were notified, so Marianne was promptly arrested and charged with murder. The authorities also put in to have Charles's body exhumed, along with Joseph Natras, her lovers, and Frederick Cotton Jr., who was her stepson. They also put in for Robert Robson Cotton, which was her biological son, to be exhumed also. Now, she was still pregnant at this point with her 13 child to the Richard, possibly John guy. The trial was put in to be delayed until after Marianne had given birth and eventually on the 7th of January 1873 she gave birth to a baby girl who she named Margaret Edith Quickmanning-Cotton. So this child was the last one that Marianne ever gave birth to. The trial was then delayed even further after there was an issue in the selection of prosecution counsel. Charles Russell was actually appointed the case in the end and the trial began on the 5th of March, 1873. Marianne's defence team included Thomas Campbell Foster, who claimed that Charles had inhaled arsenic, but this was due to a green dye in wallpaper that hung in the cotton home. It can't possibly have been from anything that Marianne did. Or it was possible that the doctor who had prescribed um, a powder for Charles's stomach had in fact mistaken arsenic powder for it instead whilst he was distracted and he was probably the one that was responsible for Charles's death. This type of mistake wasn't actually uncommon at the time, unfortunately, as previously there were cases from elsewhere where arsenic was mistakenly used instead of something else, which caused obviously deadly and tragic situation. Um, and that was the 1858 Bradford Sweet Poison incident that saw over 200 people become seriously ill and 15 to 20 people die from eating the sweets that contained arsenic instead of what they intended was DAF, which is a sugar substitute made from plaster of Paris, powdered limestone and sulfate of lime. Arsenic poisoning was also very common in that era as arsenic was being used in most things at the time. Like, for instance, wallpaper, like he stated, and sometimes including, like, baby prams, carriages. The doctor then testified himself that arsenic powder is not something that the chemist carries and is actually only provided to the chemist in liquid form, so that couldn't be the case at all. Marianne stayed really quiet throughout the trial and she actually only communicated through written letters. In one letter, this is all again allegedly, in one letter she wrote, I hope you will not judge me wrong as I have been 
on the awful crime of murder of Charles Edward Cotton, and which I am not guilty, which I am not guilty of it. Those to read the evidence that comes sin against me, you may think I am, but must tell you I am not guilty. I have been misled. It was only an hour of deliberation for the jury, coming to an unanimous decision that Mary Ann was guilty of the murder of young Charles on March 24th, 1873. Although there was other traces of poison in the other exhumed bodies, and the fact that over 15 people had died from the same thing whilst under her roof, she was actually only ever charged with the murder of Charles. <clears throat> Mary Ann was to be hanged, the first reported serial killer in Britain. Being led to the podium to be hanged, she still maintained her innocence. She was said to just be muttering under her breath, scowling, but kind of holding her head up high in the same, at the same time. And when it came to a hanging, it actually turned out to be an absolute shit show. The man doing the whole thing is said to be a notoriously clumsy hangman. They actually hadn't positioned the trapdoor high enough for her neck to break. So when she was when it opened and she went down, the executioner actually had to press down on her shoulders for roughly three minutes until she finally died. And I know this one was a piece of shit, but no. That's just how anyone can do that. Anyway, blah, blah. So she did in fact die, but some speculate this was um, an intentional act, but you know, who fucking knows. Mary Ann Cotton's last day was the 24th of March, 1873, and she was only 40 years old. She went never confessing to her crimes at all. She insisted her innocence, innocence, but it's stated that she may have killed up to 21 people during her spree. And that's is the end of Mary Cotton. Um, I just want to say that this is obviously, like I've said a million times, this has a big allegedly slapped across it. I went with the most reported things I could find and it was pretty interesting to read. I know I probably jogged through it quite quickly, but it is a good one to read. There is a two-part TV drama about her as well with um, Joanne Froggart playing Cotton called Dark Angel. And I mean, that woman playing any role. Yes, please. I also found a nursery rhyme that was composed after she was hanged in 1873 and I just wanted to share it with you all. Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and she's rotten, lying in bed with her eyes wide open. Sing, singer, what should I sing? Mary Ann Cotton, she's tied up with string. Where, where, up in the air, selling black puddings a penny a pair. Mary Ann Cotton, she's dead and forgotten, lying in bed with her bones all rotten. Sing, sing, what can I sing? Mary Ann Cotton, tied up with string. Nursery rhymes are fucking wild, guys. I might just do a whole episode on the origin of nursery rhymes because nine times out of ten, there's something fucking freaky, aren't they, really? But that's the bloody tea, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Lots of love to you all. Speak to you next time. Love you. Bye, guys.